Oh, hi, Pop-Punk Posse. I wasn't expecting you. My name's Mike. Welcome back to uh, episode 14, if you're here. Oh yeah, hey guys. I didn't even see you there. How random. My name's Keenan. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing Panic at the Disco's album, A Fever You Can't Sweat Out. Whew, it's hot in here, Mike. Sounds like somebody needs some Tylenol, Keenan. <laughs> yeah, or maybe just a little AC. You could also always dive into a nice pool to cool off. Let's stage dive in. <laughs> Fever You Can't Sweat Out is the debut studio album by Panic at the Disco. At the time of the album's recording and release, the band was comprised of Brendan Urie on lead vocals and various instruments, Ryan Ross on lead guitar, Spencer Smith on drums and percussion, and Brent Wilson on bass guitar. And as of today, Brendan Urie is the only remaining member of the band. As of today, it literally happened today. If you're listening to this, it's too late. <laughs> Brendan Urie's already it's over. Panic at the Disco. It's just a dashboard confessional kind of thing now. I was a little shocked to see that. So he's just continuing on as a solo artist, but keeping the name Panic at the Disco? Right. The members left one by one, and I guess as the lead singer, that's the best person to continue on with the name and not have too much of a disruption. The album was produced by Matt Squire and was released on September 27, 2005 through Decay Dance and Fueled by Ramen. The group formed in Las Vegas back in 2004 and they began posting demos online. These demos actually caught the attention of Fallout Boy bassist Pete Wentz. Wentz signed them to his own imprint label, Decay Dance, so that was Pete Wentz's subsect of Fueled by Ramen. And he did so without ever actually hearing them perform live. That's pretty crazy. That's another cool example of a very famous pop punk artist discovering an up and coming band. I didn't realize that happened so much within the genre. At least at this time, you think 2004 MySpace was probably the big platform for getting your stuff out there. And they just struck gold. When they were signed, they were still all in high school. Besides Ryan Ross, who actually dropped out of the University of Nevada to go full-time with the band. Is that word S-O-M-D studios? Somd studios? Somebody wants... Okay. <laughs> the album was recorded on a small budget in Somd Studios, College Park, Maryland, over several weeks in June 2005. Upon its release, it became a huge commercial success it had i think five singles mike five very memorable singles the second single i rate sins not tragedies that's the one that everybody to this day probably remembers even outside of the pop punk world it became a top 10 hit in the u.s and helped bolster sales of the record by 2011 the album had sold 1.8 million copies and went double platinum in 2015 making it the group's best-selling release of all time huge mike that's great good job panic at the disco yeah good job guys <laughs> now mike yes keenan september 2005 what the heck's going on here dude september 3rd 2005 keenan 
Brokeback Mountain premieres. Huge. That was a big movie. It was a big movie. Jake Gyllenhaal, that other guy. Heath Ledger. <laughs> I know, I'm kidding. <laughs> Come on, man. Two very famous actors. You can't remember one and not the other. I mean, that's just... Don't tarnish his legacy and his memory. That's true. I actually have never seen it. Really? I've seen it. There were They were two gay cowboys or ranch hands, and they fell in love with one another. I think it was assigned viewing in like a film class I was in in either high school or college. But it was a very popular movie at the time. Did very well in the box office from what I remember. Did it win awards? I think it won awards. It was critically acclaimed, that's for sure. September 12th, 2005. Hong Kong Disneyland opens in Hong Kong. (laughs) (laughs) It was a partnership between Disney and the Hong Kong government. And this marked the first attempt of Disney tapping into the Chinese and Southeastern Asian market. That's a big moment for Disney, Mike. Have you ever been there? I haven't. I've been to Walt Disney World, Disneyland in California, and Disneyland Paris. You confirmed that you've been to Disney World like basically as many years as you've been on this planet, like 30 times. I think so because I haven't gone every single year, but there were years that we made like a trip in the early calendar year and a trip later in the calendar year. Mike, do you think Hong Kong Disneyland is on your bucket list? I imagine it have to be. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's fair. I, w- I would like to check out Tokyo Disneyland. That that would be the next one I would want to see. Oh, that one would be fun. That one would be a lot of fun. September 12th. This is a sad one, Mike. The bodies of more than 40 patients were discovered in a flooded hospital in New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Katrina, that was, I would say, probably one of the biggest news stories of our lives in our generation, that was a really big national story. And I forgot that it basically dominated the news in late summer 2005. So a lot of the news stories that I was going through in September were follow-ups to Hurricane Katrina. It was all about the recovery efforts and them trying to save lives. And it was just a lot of chaotic Hurricane Katrina stories. I found the same thing. Thankfully, I don't think we've had anything of that magnitude since then. I know there's been storms that have approached the devastation Katrina caused. Like in Houston a a year or two ago, I know that there was a lot of people displaced. Part of Katrina was it's the levees broke and water just rushed into the city and damaged so much stuff. We went to New Orleans back in 2017, and there's still just wards of that city that the buildings are still just dilapidated and the issue was that there's just people didn't have the money to make the repairs so they just left so to this day there's still places that are uninhabited basically in new orleans yeah and it's it's odd because it just depends on if you had insurance or if you were able to rebuild so there are streets where there is a normal nice looking house and next door there's just a house that still has markings on it from when they went house by house and cleared them during the aftermath of Katrina. Jeez, that's crazy. Yeah. It just makes you think like we are in a place in the country where we have so few natural disasters. Like we don't have to deal with earthquakes. We don't have to deal with wildfires. We very rarely get the remnants of a hurricane. We don't have tornadoes. It's kind of crazy how there are parts of the country that have to deal with this stuff like every single year. It's kind of scary. Right. I always think about that when I complain about snow, driving in the snow. It's like not that bad at all. 
Right. It's like we could live in Tornado Alley or be worried about earthquakes or hurricanes. For the most part, we're pretty good. Although I did total my car in a big snowstorm uh, like two years ago. So, you know. I'm sorry about your total car. Oh, thanks, Mike. You're welcome. It'll be okay. September 13th, the TV show Supernatural debuts on the WB, starring Jensen Ackles and Jared Padalecki. You know those heartthrobs, right, Mike? Yeah, I love Jensen and Jared. <laughs> is, that, is that what they're known as? Yeah, they have, um, they have a clothing line at, no. at Kohl's. <laughs> no, although I wouldn't be surprised. To this day, Supernatural is, I believe, the longest-running North American fantasy series. How about that, Mike? What an accomplishment. That's like the genus and species. If you narrow it down far enough, you're going to yeah. be the longest-running of something. Well, what do they compete with? Like, what's another North American fantasy series? And there's probably tons of them, actually. Is that, like, released in North America or based in North America? Yes to both. Yeah, I was thinking Game of Thrones. Yeah, Game of Thrones is probably in there. That was, what, seven or eight seasons? I try to put it out of my mind as much as possible. Well, Supernatural is definitely in the teens. Fifteen seasons, maybe? Wow. I can't imagine watching a show for that long. But I did watch the very first episode of that. Not when it premiered, but years later. I think the entire series is on Netflix. And I watched the very first episode, and I was like, eh, definitely take it or leave it. And leave it really keenan hollywood's best and brightest september 18 2005 the 57th primetime emmy awards are held sounds like a big deal it was do you want to know the big winners of the evening yeah tell me who won for outstanding comedy series everybody loves raymond oh that's a big one it's one of your favorites yeah one of my all-time faves want to hear my ray romano impression yeah, please, go. Hey, I'm Ray Romano. You're joking, right? Hey, I'm, Ray, I'm Raymond Romano. Really? That's the best you can do? What's yours? Let me try mine. Hey, I'm Ray Romano, hey! <laughs> that was actually, that was way better than <laughs> I mine. <know. laughs> I know. <laughs> I hate my mama. <laughs> oh, man. I'm glad I went first. And then can you do, um? what's his brother's name in that? Oh, uh, the... Robert Barone. Hey, uh, hey Raymond. He has, like, the deepest voice, yeah. I think, in the world. So I don't know if it's actually possible. Hey, hey, Raymond, everybody loves you, man. That literally just sounded like your Ray one. Well, as we came to find out, my Ray one wasn't that great, so. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm Raymond Romano. I can't. <laughs> what? Like, I, uh, I know what you're doing with your voice, but I can't make my voice do it. Oh, all right. I think Robert's more like a, hey, Raymond. No, nah, that one sucked, too. It was still better than mine. Yeah, true. Okay. Who else won? For Outstanding Drama Series, Lost. Ah, that really is one of your favorite TV shows. It actually is. Lost won. <laughs> How about that? How about that for a headline? Is that what caught your attention? Lost found itself winning Outstanding Drama Series. <sighs> Mike, you should be a writer. If only. It's so clever. Yeah, so it is one of my all-time favorite shows. I think it still holds the top spot. Every once in a while while I'm watching a show and I'm getting really into it, I think that it could surpass Lost. Like, I remember when I was watching Breaking Bad, mm, mm -hmm. I thought, this is going to be my new favorite show of all time. And I still I still think Breaking Bad was the best complete series I've ever seen from start to finish. But 
it's not my favorite. There's something about that smoke monster that just really caught your attention, right? Yeah, it did have the perfect amount of fantasy mixed in with reality for my liking. And a little bit of horror too, right? A little bit. Some more television news, Mike. September 19th, the television show Seventh Heaven officially becomes the longest-running family drama in television history when the WB begins airing the series' 10th season. It's a lot of television, uh, what's the word? You said the word television quite a number of times. Yeah, I should probably <laughs> not say television anymore. Uh, a lot of TV accomplishments this month, Mike. It is. Seventh Heaven, I remember watching that all the time, and then years later, Reverend Campbell came out as uh, a pedophile. As they would say in England. Not in the show, but the guy who played him, yeah. <laughs> that would be a crazy episode. <laughs> Do you think The Sopranos ended on a suspenseful note? <laughs> the last episode yeah. of Seventh Heaven, they actually... What a twist that was. <laughs> it's not really funny. No. Seventh Heaven was one of those TV shows that was always on after school, it seemed. Yeah. I like didn't really want to watch it, but for some reason I always did, and it was like eh. it was like almost too wholesome. Yeah, it was always on after school, and it was on for four hours. Yeah, there was always a marathon going on. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the theme song for Seventh Heaven? Mmm, Seventh Heaven. So good. It was a classic. Your favorite segment, Mike, some famous weddings. Oh, man, Keenan, I can't wait to see who got divorced <laughs> this month. <laughs> September 24th. It's actually a big day for weddings. Two major celebrity weddings. The first one, actor Ashton Kutcher, 27 years old, weds actress Demi Moore, who was 42 at the time in Beverly Hills, California. I remember that one being a huge deal because he was so much younger than her. It was such a weird relationship. And didn't she divorce Bruce Willis and then married Ashton Kutcher? She had previously been divorced from Bruce Willis, but they had been married for 13 years. So I think that was part of what was so shocking was she was already in this Hollywood perfect marriage or whatever. And then that ended and her rebound was just this goofy guy who at the time was you know, From Dude, Where's My Car and that 70s show? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a very strange one. So how long did they last? They lasted a pretty long time by Hollywood standards. They were divorced in 2013. Oh, wow. Good for them. It's huge. It's a whole eight years, Mike. Yeah, they hung in there for the middle hall. Till death do them part. And then on the exact same day, King of Queens actor-comedian Patton Oswalt weds writer Michelle McNamara in Los Angeles. That's a big one because she actually passed away a couple years ago, pretty suddenly. And she wrote this very popular novel about the Golden State Killer, which actually helped lead to him getting captured. Do you remember that whole news story? That's right, yeah. It's a more recent one. Yeah. I listened to the My Favorite Murder podcast pretty consistently, and they had talked about her passing. And then when more details of the case were coming to light, it was a huge item in the true crime world yeah because that was decades in the process of if you look it up this guy is just this old man now but right he killed 
bunch of people did some very dastardly things. So, And the information that she uncovered helped lead to his capture, which is incredible. And I think it happened after she died, which is kind of the sad part of it. She had passed before a book actually was published. And oh, really? the book was what kind of reignited the interest in this cold case. There was one notable death this month, Keenan, and it also has a relationship to this album. We'll get to that later. But on September 14th, director-producer Robert Wise passed away, and his works included West Side Story and Sound of Music. Ah, yeah, I see the connection. We will get to that later. Let's talk some themes, Mike. What were some themes that you picked up on? It sounded like a record written by a high schoolers (laughs) (laughs) a lot of romantic themes keenan whether it was flings scandals uh falling in love with a stripper (laughs) all right (laughs) t-pain isn't that t-pain song (laughs) yeah i think it is uh you know those classic love themes mike (laughs) but there's also themes that relate to uh, substance abuse. I noticed a lot of songs alluded to alcoholism and drug use, which we saw a little bit on My Chemical Romance's album, but yeah, it finds a place in more than one song on this one as well. For me, Mike, listening through the entire album again and rereading some of the lyrics, I actually picked up on a narrative that seems to be present throughout the album in each one of the songs. Kind of like that All American Rejects album that we discussed, kind of like the My Chemical Romance album that we discussed, I actually think there was a narrative element to the entire album. I think all these songs are connected in a way. So we didn't really focus on it too much during My Chemical Romance because we wanted to discuss some other things. But I think this one, it's kind of hard to escape it. And I think it is a little bit lower key than the My Chemical Romance album. So I think you really need to kind of listen and dig around some of the clues to pick up on it. So I, I kind of want to get into it a little bit if you're open to it. Sure, I don't see why not. Cool. This album also is separated almost into two different acts. There's an intermission about halfway through, and the sound completely changes from the first half to the second half of this album. The first half is more classic pop punk with some electronic elements mixed in, while the second half is more... I don't know what you would necessarily call it, but kind of Baroque or almost like circus music. Yeah, definitely circus music. I also thought similarly carnival music. And I did read that term Baroque pop and I was like, I don't know what that means exactly, but that sounds like the perfect way to describe it. Because it does sound like very old timey music, these old timey instruments that they blend into a more pop punk slash electronic genre and sound. It's very bizarre. It was something so different from anything we've heard before. If you separate the lyrics from the music, it would fit in with a bunch of guys sitting around a parlor in powdered wigs. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's so weird. Just listening to Ryan Ross and Brendan Urie banging out some songs on the old organ. (laughs) And you see that in a lot of their music videos. They have like those old school outfits that sort of match this carnival circus theme. It certainly is interesting. But I will say that this album is sort of known for having a lot of different experimentation in sound, 
using different instruments, different tempos within songs. I picked up on that. Very different from the classic pop punk albums that we've discussed before. And kind of to go off that circus carnival theme, they are very theatrical in both the audio of the album and also the music videos associated with these songs. It's kind of like MCR. Like everything was a big grand performance to them. I think they definitely treated their songs as more than just songs. Yeah, it was so much more than that. It was an entire production that went into each one. And a lot of their songs play out almost like a play or a musical at times. Listening through, that's all I kept hearing. That's all I kept thinking about. They have a flair for the dramatic. When did you first listen to this album? When did you first hear about Panic at the Disco? I bought this album, so I must have known about them when this came out or shortly thereafter. As we discussed on previous episodes, I was a big Fall Out Boy fan at the time, and I followed them pretty closely. So I'm sure at some point Pete Wentz was promoting this album or plugging them on Fall Out Boy's website. It could have been that that led me to listening. I also remember hanging out with Alex Taratuski and Meg O'Malley one night. It was freshman year of high school, and I think Tom and I went over to watch High School Musical. Oh, yeah. I think I was there for that. Were you there, too? I, I know, like... Pretty sure. But a very 2005 thing to do. I love High School Musical. <laughs> We're all in this together. It actually was great. I think Alex might have been wearing a Panic at the Disco shirt. Mm. So maybe that was the first time I heard of them. Because I think I was confused as to who they were. Right. Because it's like, if you just see it, it's like, what the hell is this? She also had a... This is going to sound like I just stalked this girl. But... Oh, boy. I remember she also had a Panic at the Disco buddy icon on AIM. It was the four faces from this album cover. And then it just said Panic at the Disco. I also feel like Alex had... Panic of the Disco as like her away message or in her aim bio or something like that. She definitely did. And it's so weird that I still remember things like this, but I think it was either in her bio or away message. It was swear to shake it up if you swear to listen. Yep. I remember that vividly. <laughs> Honestly, it sounds like all I did was talk to Alex and read her aim profile. Sounds like that might have been the case. I think the main culprit here is that I just didn't have that many friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably pretty true. (laughs) Yeah. Chalk this one up to another Meg, Alex, Steph band that they listened to that we decided to get into. Yeah, the Oak Terrace Trio. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. You were just trying to get closer to them. Let's be honest. I was was trying to get into Oh, Panic of the Disco. I love them, Alex. Please like me. (laughs) I'm still going along with the ruse. Yeah, clearly. Am I trying to break Aaron and Alex up before they get married? So Yes. This is the long game, Keenan. This is This the is long very game. long. Very long con. I even got married and had a kid to throw off the scent. To throw Alex off the trail? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it seems to be working. Hopefully she doesn't listen to this. Or else the jig is up. I don't think she will. <laughs> no, I don't think she will either. She has a sticker, so you know. I totally agree, Mike. 
I think I listened to this around the same time. I think I was exposed to it, hanging out with that same group of people. More recently, I got back into this album because my good buddy Joe Gartlin, who was also obsessed with this album back in the day, he told me that he goes on long road trips and he'll just listen to this album on repeat. You know, you got to respect the commitment. And so I started re-listening to this album because we were blasting it in his car and he was telling me how much he reminisced about it. It's still good to this day. Yeah, it definitely holds up, in my opinion. I think I'm good for two listens through and then maybe throw on something else. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I will say that it takes an emotional toll on you. There's a lot going on in this album, so. There certainly is. Track number one, Introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, we proudly present a picturesque draw of passing fences. So it's an intro track. We've seen this before. Sum 41, Introduction to Destruction. It's a nice little lead-in to get you prepared for the rest of the album, Mike. It is, and it does set the tone musically. The introduction is just one sentence. It's, ladies and gentlemen, we proudly present a picturesque score of passing fantasy. And... Before that, there's actually some Polish at the very beginning, and I have no idea how to pronounce it, but I did type it into Google Translate, and it said the Polish to English translation means the Germans met with wide publicity within themselves. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, really? <laughs> yeah. I think there's probably some nuance or dialect that got off within the, I'm sure. the translation process there. I would hope so. Or maybe they just wanted to throw something random in to make it sound cool, and they were like, we don't care if this is gibberish, it just sounds cool. Yeah. And they assumed that nobody would be looking it up 15 years later. <laughs> Why are we? <laughs> I don't know. But it was cool. It was like an old-timey radio or carnival barker, and it does set that tone of this carnival circus sound, doesn't it? It does. It draws you in. So you said that it was picturesque, but when I looked this up online, I wanted to confirm it. The site that I looked at said picaresque, and I was like, that has to be a typo. That's not a word. So I Googled it, and picaresque actually means a genre of prose fiction that depicts the adventures of a roguish but appealing hero of low social class who lives by his wits in a corrupt society. So that's a real thing, and I dug a little bit deeper online, and there is discussion about whether the word is picturesque or picaresque. And picaresque could totally fit in with the themes of this album. Because it is about this guy who's down on his luck, he's hanging out with the drags of society, and he's doing these you know, terrible things, and these terrible things happen to him. So I think that could totally fit. Yeah, it definitely fits in perfectly. That's interesting. I guess we'll come to see how the themes relate back to that. I only knew picaresque was a word because it's the name of a Decemberist album. Oh, that's right. Good call. That's Didn't even think of that. About the extent of my knowledge. Until now. Track number two. Also, reading all these song titles is going to be like reading a novel. Here we go. Track number two. The only difference between martyrdom and suicide is press coverage. Huh. How about that? That's a really good point.
It's a debut single from the album. I really like this song. It's a highlight for me, too. And this is the one that actually has the lines that we read for hours in Alex's AIM profile. Oh, yeah, that's right. It, it is. Swear to shake it up if you swear to listen. Oh, we're still yep, so young, right. desperate for attention. I aim to be. Your eyes, trophy <laughs> boys, trophy wives. Are we just going to start reading the entire <laughs> song now? I'm kind of into it. Let's just go. Let's do it. When I listened to this song, I saw it in a couple different ways. One, I saw it as very realistically they're announcing Panic at the Disco as a band, and they're sort of introducing them to the world. And he's addressing the listener directly. Right. I noted that it's almost like they're breaking the fourth wall. They are. They totally are. Like in a play or a film. Mm -hmm. It's like they turn to the camera and say, hey, hey, listener, thanks for buying our album. And so not only did I think that it was Panic at the Disco announcing themselves to the world, because this was their debut album. This was their first real song from that album after the instrumental introduction. But I also thought that Brendan was literally setting up the narrative that he was about to explain. He says, I'm the narrator, and this is just the prologue. I mean, it doesn't get any more <laughs> obvious right. than that, right? So this is a song that's not only an introduction for the band, but an introduction for the album. And now let's dive into the themes. I also thought it was a great way for them to demonstrate how different they were as a musical artist. Whereas other pop punk and emo bands had very predictable sounds and instruments in their albums. These guys use keyboard and synth and drum machine and they kind of throw it all at you at once in this song. And you're like, oh, this is totally different. I'm now jumping into an album that is going to have way different sounds than what I'm used to. They almost call out music in general with a few of these lines. They say, Dear studio audience, I have an announcement to make. It seems the artists these days are not who you think. So we'll pick back up on that on another page. And that made me wonder, are they talking about themselves? Like, are they saying, we're not who you think we are. This is an album that is kind of a piece of art. Right. Musicians and artists as a whole are putting on this front for their professional personas and not being genuine in what they produce. I like that. I think that's a really good way to look at it. I think you're probably pretty right about that. It is also worth mentioning, Mike, that the song title itself is a reference to a Chuck Palahniuk work. Like many of their song titles throughout the album, this one is paraphrased from his novel Survivor. And they reference a lot of his novels in different songs. They do, and we'll come to take a little bit of a closer look at that on some of these tracks. I've never read Survivor. I actually own it, but I've never read it. How about that? Oh, really? Huh. So I'm not sure how it relates back to the lyrics, but there are a few of these where it looks like they just took his novel and put it into song form. Yeah, he was a big influence of theirs. I think this one is probably a comment on media. I think they're trying to say that the media can spin something to make it look like either a suicide or martyrdom and how we're influenced by the way media can spin certain headlines, certain news stories, certain events. Right. Press coverage does change a lot of things. 
One more fun fact, Keenan. I know you love this guy. The Tommy Sunshine Brooklyn Fire remix of this song is featured in the film Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> oh, yeah. Snakes on a Plane. That's one of my favorite movies. I saw that on opening night. That's right. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> With Mark Armstrong. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so good. We should do that soundtrack next. That would be fun. That would be a lot of fun. Well, maybe not next. Well, maybe not next, but upcoming. Track number three. London Beckon songs about money written by machines. Ooh, that's a mouthful. Continuing with that theme of the media, Keenan, I think this is a song where the band predicts or projects how they will be received by critics and the press once their album is released. They reference themselves by name. They say, panic, meet the press. Right. It's time for us to take a chance. We're just a wet dream for the webzine. Make us it, make us hip, make us seen. Or shrug us off your shoulders. Don't approve a single word that we wrote. So they're saying it could go one of two ways. They could become these internet darlings, which is kind of how they were discovered and the personas that they have going into the, the release of this album. Or the critics could totally pan this album and they're dead on arrival. Whoa. All right, Fallout Boy. Nice. I think you're totally right. It seems like they do reference the pressure for them to quote unquote make it and all the pressure that they're put under by their fans record execs, even probably themselves. I think there's a broader theme to it, which is just the pressures of everyday life to be successful and worrying about what others are going to think. That's something that I picked up on throughout this album is like they're always worried about what others are thinking or the character of this narrative is always worried about being the best to his potential and being the best in everybody else's eyes. And so I think this actually sets up that narrative for this guy holding himself to this really high standard and he often isn't able to reach that standard. I would have to agree with you. Also, can we talk for a quick second about the word webzine? I had to look up what webzine was. It's apparently just an online magazine, like a website magazine. Does anybody use the term webzine? I think probably in 2005. That was like a, a hit word back then. That was like a cool word. Do you remember on Rocket Power, Reggie Rocket released a zine? Yeah, I do remember that. Zines were like the... <laughs> underground punk not corporate so you had rolling stone then you had all these punk scenes that covered independent underground acts and oh yeah that's how they kind of spread the word throughout the community so i guess adapting it to the digital age there probably were these webzines or honestly they probably were more like blogs with pictures but that's what i assumed they probably were but did people legitimately call them webzines or is that the first you're kind of hearing about that, too? I really don't know. It could have just been that it rhymed and it sounded cool. Yeah. Because it, it does, and it does. The more I think about it, it is pretty incredible that these guys were signed without anybody having seen them play a show. I know. It's not like they didn't have a demo release. It's like, nobody went to a live show at Panic! at the Disco, confirmed that they could, in fact, 
sing and play instruments. So this this was a complete gamble, and I'm sure a lot of people really wanted them to fail because at the time there were probably hundreds of other bands, thousands of other bands like them on MySpace where maybe these guys just got a little bit lucky that Pete Wentz stumbled upon them. And I think now this could never happen again in terms of a band or an act. There are just too many acts out there that are constantly putting out new music. I think it was just perfect mm-hmm. place, perfect time, and perfect person in Pete Wentz to put these guys on the map. Do you think Pete Wentz discovered these guys in a webzine? Probably. I think I read they just sent him a link to their songs. Ooh, risky click. They just reached out and said, hey, check us out. And he actually did, which is kind of cool. <laughs> that is kind of shocking. Maybe I'll send him a link to our podcast and maybe he'll actually open it up. <laughs> <laughs> that would be pretty cool, actually. But it is incredibly depressing seeing the struggle of musicians to get heard and actually get somebody to give them a chance and play their music. I remember we went to, we took a field trip to XPN in high school. I think it was part of a multimedia class. And in the lobby, before we went on the tour, there was just a USPS mail bin, like the kind of bin that they, if you stop your mail for a week or two, they just deliver all your mail in this big bin. Oh, yeah. And it was just full of CDs that people had sent in to potentially be put on the air. That's insane. Track number four, Nails for Breakfast, Tax for Snacks. Wasn't that your diet today, Mike? Uh, only the tax. I skipped breakfast. <laughs> oh, nice. The first thing that struck me from re-listening to this song, Mike, was the kind of weird use of autotune. Like, it wasn't a good use of autotune. It wasn't to make him sound better. It was actually almost to make him sound worse as a singer. And it made me actually feel a little uneasy. I wonder if that's why he did it. It could be. I really have no idea the history of autotune. I wonder at what stage in its development were we at in 2005? I was thinking probably right at its peak. I think T-Pain was crushing the airwaves with a lot of autotune. And I think Panic of the Disco probably heard that and decided, oh, we should give it a whirl. But you're right. It almost sounds like they figured out they could use this cool effect. So they just decided to use it whether or not it made the song better. Yeah. And I know that... Brendan Urie is one of the better pop-punk emo alternative singers. He's known for having a good voice. He's collaborated with Taylor Swift recently. He's been sort of a pop icon over the last few years. He doesn't need autotune. He's actually a very good singer. So that's why I was a little confused as to why he would use it. There had to be another reason other than to just make him sound good. Probably just cool effects on Fruity Loops. Fruity Loops. Yeah, they were using Fruity Loops. You know it. The theme of this was interesting and i came to find out with a couple of these songs they were so 
catchy and upbeat that I never actually looked further into the lyrics to see what they were actually talking about. And this one's a bit of a downer. Very much a downer. The idea I got from it was it's about an addict in rehab. There's a line that says, I am alone in this bed, house, and head. So it's like an isolated feeling, not really knowing how to deal with that or overcome that. And then the reason why I think it's about a rehab is because there's a line prescribed pills to offset the shakes to offset the pills. So maybe this person is finally being prescribed the correct medication for whatever ailments they have rather than relying on drugs and alcohol or or self-medication. I heard the same thing. I thought it was either somebody in rehab or in a mental institution who's in recovery. I thought it could have been maybe a failed suicide attempt even. Could be. And to carry on the narrative. So in the song prior, I heard this guy who was trying to please everybody, trying to be at the top of the industry, at the top of his potential, and could never live up to everybody's expectations. And so I thought he just broke. And so now he's either recovering because he went crazy or he overdosed or he attempted suicide and now he's in this really bizarre institutional type place. I didn't necessarily understand why they kept referring to it as hospice because in my experience, hospice, that term is reserved for end of life treatment, essentially just making somebody comfortable in their remaining time they have left when they have an uncurable ailment. So I wasn't sure if they did that intentionally saying, you know, this is about a person that has an addiction issue and they've almost accepted that that will be the cause of their death one day, whether it's maybe not this weekend. They say hospice is a relaxing weekend getaway. So you see when celebrities go into rehab, it's these resorts almost. And sometimes it's like once you get out, your world comes spinning back around and you go back into that routine that got you into rehab in the first place. I thought using the term hospice was an allusion to the fact that this person was on their deathbed. They were at sort of their lowest point and death was near, I guess. Yeah, there are some other lines that allude to death and dying. The line that says, God's not coming today, in my mind meant you weren't going to die today. You know, you were going to live to see another day, but that isn't a given in this person's life. Right. Really fun song. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, Jesus, way to get the mood really low. But I think a lot of these songs are going to be like that. I think this is going to feel a lot like My Chemical Romance, where there's not a lot of happy songs in here. I think it's mostly dark themes. Yeah, deceivingly dark. Very deceivingly dark. Track number five, Kamisato. To me, this was a follow-up to the previous song. I thought the same thing, actually. It sounded like this person who was in recovery or was in a mental institution, I guess, recovered, and this was almost a relapse. The recovery didn't work, and this person is now having those same struggles over again. 
And that's what the song details. Right. I had to look up what Kamasado meant. And it is a reference to a military term. It's a surprise attack occurring at night or daybreak when the enemy is supposed to be asleep. I related that to a person that is staying up all night, making these destructive decisions and going out and getting drunk or doing drugs when they should be sleeping, essentially. I don't know if that was to be taken that literally, but there's also some other lines like the bruises and contusions, which is a cool near rhyme. The bruises and contusions will remind me what you did when you wake. You've earned a place atop the ICU's Hall of Fame. The camera caught you causing a commotion on the gurney again. So here's this person that is constantly getting drunk, constantly being admitted to the ICU, needing probably liquids from an IV or to to get sober again or to stay alive, essentially. And it reminded me of times when you may have had too much to drink and you wake up just sore or in pain the next day. And you're like, what did I do last night to feel this way? I wouldn't know, Mike. It's never happened to me. <laughs> your your entire thigh is just black and blue for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, how did I get this? I always think I must have tried to lift something that I shouldn't have tried to lift. Yeah. <laughs> what was your most recent stay in the hospital? <laughs> when Jack was born. <laughs> <laughs> was that the most recent one? That's the only one. All right, only one by yellow card. <laughs> <laughs> What's your weirdest hospital story? What's Abby's weirdest hospital story? Yeah, I don't have too many personally. Abby had to go to the hospital at this point. It was probably close to seven or eight years ago. She just had low blood sugar. (laughs) Oh, she just didn't eat breakfast? (laughs) Yeah. I think she was working, I think it was around 2010, 2011, because we were in the movie theaters watching, about to watch the film Super 8. Yeah. And she just turned to me and she's like, I feel like I'm going to pass out. <laughs> and sitting in a movie, it's like the lowest stress, lowest energy activity you could be doing. Yeah. And I was like, so like, we have to leave. And she's like, yeah, we should probably leave. Can I just watch this movie first? I know. It's like, we, they're not going to give us our money back. <laughs> we were actually there with Steve and we just left. And I texted him like, sorry, dude, Abby thinks she's going to pass out. Wait, she was also in a movie theater with low blood sugar and they have popcorn and candy and soda and like all the crappiest food you can possibly get. That's what I told her. Like, just eat some raisinets and and drink a Coke and you'll probably be fine. Eat some Sour Patch Kids. You're good to go. So we did end up going to Doylestown Hospital and they monitored her for a couple hours. It was honestly Thankfully, really boring. Did you call the ambulance on her for being a real baby? <laughs> <laughs> the ambulance did come. Oh, really? Well, until she oh. was at the hospital, you're not positive what's going on. That's the thing that's like... Yeah, that's true. After the fact, it's really funny. And we took pictures of her like <laughs> lying in bed like, you idiot. But leading up to it, it's like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? That's so, a fair point. Um, but yeah, I don't have any... Thankfully, I don't have too many funny hospital stays do you have anything that comes to mind the only one that really comes to mind is right after college i tried to open a beer bottle by smacking it on the lip of 
like a surface. You know how you, you know how cool guys do sure. that, right? Yeah. You know, cool guys can do it's that. It's like when Fonzie would elbow the jukebox. Exactly. Yeah. It's this generation's uh, elbowing the jukebox. <laughs> <laughs> you crack a a bottle on the side of a table or something. Well, I try to do that with a Corona bottle and the neck of the bottle immediately shattered upon impact. And I was doing it in front of a bunch of people. I was trying to look cool. And glass went straight into my hand. And for the rest of the night, I remember thinking that I was going to be fine. And I just like wrapped it up and I woke up the next morning and it just bled completely through onto my bed. And I had to go to the ER. And I remember they asked how it happened and I lied and said (laughs) something else. And (laughs) <laughs> they knew exactly how it happened. They just needed your, of course, your, your statement for the file. <laughs> yeah, and I think my discharge papers actually said it was like diagnosis: glass removal from hand, stitched up, and also like intoxication. Like they, they obviously <laughs> knew that I had been drinking, even though I did not say it once. So you know, <laughs> so that was a fun one. We did have a friend in college, and I'll keep his name anonymous, but at one point, he fell off of a parking garage. It was a... Wait. That's deceiving. It was... (laughs) What? It was like a parking lot with like a second level. So he fell from... Still, a significant fall. So he fell essentially one story onto concrete or blacktop or something? Yeah. And I'm not sure exactly. Yikes. I'm guessing the garage itself was safe i don't know if he was just trying to jump over a guardrail thinking that he was on level ground but he was fine but he did end up going to the hospital that night and being in a little bit of an altered state he was trying to like crack jokes with the nurses who at that point were in the middle of their shift in the middle of the night and uh each time a nurse would come in he would ask them to name a tv show and he would sing the the TV show theme song. Oh my God. And his biggest takeaway was he was just really upset that nobody thought that it was amusing that he was able to yeah. sing these songs. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> I think probably by like the second time they were like, stop going in his room. <laughs> Track number six, Time to Dance. I think this is probably my second favorite song from the album. The intro is so good. I think the intro might be musically the best part of this entire album. The intro is what always drew me to this song as well, Keenan. I would say probably the most upbeat song on the album. I agree. Yeah. And you said it was your second favorite? I think it's my second favorite as well. Oh, could this be the first album where we are totally aligned on our favorite songs? We'll have to find out. Let's find out, Mike. We're definitely aligned with our second favorite. Oh. But here's another Chuck Palahniuk reference, Keenan. This was a song I had mentioned. Almost every line relates back to his novel, Invisible Monsters. That is the one that I've read. This is what I used to do in, like, in high school and early college. I would 
like an author and then I would buy a ton of their books and just never have the time to read all of them. <laughs> you read like one of them and then you'd be like, all right, I'm over it. Right. So I think I have like three or four Chuck Palahniuk novels, but this is the only one I've read. It's about a, a model. Brandy Alexander is a model. And here's just a couple of the lines that allude back to the book. So walls line the bullet holes. Uh, the book opens with a shooting. And give me envy, give me malice, give me your attention. That's prose that Polonick uses in the book, mocking a photographer, telling the model how to feel and you know how to pose. Boys will be boys hiding in estrogen refers to a transgender individual in the novel. And wearing aubergine dreams refers to the character's favorite color of makeup from the novel. So some unmistakable references. Yeah, a lot of things borrowed from the novel, a lot of references, a lot of inspiration from that novel, from what I remember. The novel itself kind of deals with physical beauty, which I think we can relate to a couple of the other songs on this album as well. The theme is that beauty is only skin deep, and it's kind of what these people are like on the inside that makes them ugly individuals. Whoa, yeah. Yeah, it's big. So the song seemed to be about two people that are falling in love, but in less than ideal circumstances. And maybe that's what it is. It's a guy falling in love with a girl solely for her looks, solely because she's attractive, but they're actually not right for each other. One of the unmistakable references is to the shotgun wedding, right? Mm -hmm. When do you have a shotgun wedding? It's when the father of the bride is forcing the, the groom to marry his daughter. And so that's obviously never a good situation. And so I think this couple was forced to be together. And as we can probably tell, it's not going to work out. I would bet you're right in that sentiment. So as far as the narrative goes, I think this guy basically had a mental break, was trying to recover for a while, relapsed, is probably on the mend again, and now is finding love, but probably in all the wrong places. And we'll explore more of those wrong places as we go along. I will say that when Brendan Urie sings, when I say shotgun, you say wedding, shotgun wedding, I thought that was such a funny twist on the call and response. Like in concert, he's yelling shotgun to the crowd and they're all yelling wedding back. That's so awesome. What if your band at your wedding breaks out this song? (laughs) That'd be awesome. Are you kidding me? They better be playing this song. Track number seven. Lying is the most fun a girl can have without taking her clothes off. Ew, what? Yeah, saucy. This is the fourth single from the album, Mike, and also my favorite song. There it is. Nice. Wait, is this your favorite? No, I actually don't like this song that much. You don't like this song? I don't like the pacing of it. I love the pacing of it. There's a couple lines that make me feel uncomfy. All the lines make me feel comfortable. Really? 
No, I'm just disagreeing with you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, the whole song makes me feel uncomfortable. You kidding me? It's such a weird <laughs> song. True. But I think that's the whole point. It's like, it's supposed to be overly sexual, overly explicit. Definitely. I guess I should clarify. I do think the chorus on the song is fantastic. It's just the verses that are like, which again, like you had said, that might have been their intention. Makes me feel like, yeesh. Yeah. Is it getting hot in here? It's not a song you want to listen to with your parents in the room, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> that stinks, because usually me and my parents gather around and listen to Founding of the Disco together. Yeah, when you guys are hanging out on a Friday night, <laughs> throwing on a little panic. <laughs> this is not the first song you put on. I think it's pretty obvious it's about a guy discovering that his girlfriend is cheating on him. I also thought that a lot of it is him trying to convince himself that he's better off without her anyway. Um, I think he's kind of a little bit in denial too. And it's interesting because he seems to be using his pain to entertain the audience. Like this is another situation where I feel like they're breaking the fourth wall a little bit. The chorus is, so testosterone boys and Harlequin girls, will you dance to this beat and hold a lover close? He's using his misery to entertain the crowd. He's essentially telling this girl that he was the best that she was ever going to have and that exactly. she can cheat on him and move on from him, but she's never going to find another guy that was as great as him. It kind of reminded me of the Gaston song from Beauty and the Beast. Like when he sings like, yeah, no one shoots like Gaston, no one, all that stuff. It's like, yeah, he's essentially saying that in so many words. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, Gaston was delusional, right? So is this guy delusional? It could be. I mean, all those things Gaston said were true. He was just a terrible, he had a terrible personality. So maybe we are in a similar circumstance with this guy. Was Gaston the biggest Disney beefcake? Hercules, dude. But he's also not mortal, right? He's only, is he, he's like half mortal. Yeah, he's basically a god. In terms of he's beefcake half in pure human form... Gaston is definitely top three. Yeah. Let's not get too weird with animals or anything <laughs> right now. But yeah. Oh, Kronk's a pretty good beefcake too from Emperor's New Groove. Kronk is like, uh, Kronk is sort of like a goober though. Like he's not swooning any women. They are similar in the sense that they're both lacking in mental capacity. Like they're That's both true. pretty dumb dummies. There's also Kristoff from Frozen. He's a more recent. Yeah, he's CGI beefcake. That's right. There's uh, some problematic ones. John Smith from Pocahontas, mm, yeah. who also just so happens to be voiced by Mel Gibson. So double problematic. Yeah, very problematic. <laughs> they really nailed that one. Any, any so more? Wait, did we just? <laughs> wait, so what? how did we get on this again? <laughs> I said this song reminds me of the Gaston song. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So I, I think by way of extrapolation, I think we're saying that Brendan Urie is a Disney beefcake. Yeah. Doesn't he sing? He sings a Frozen song, dude. He sings a song from Frozen 2. Oh, really? Into the Unknown from Frozen 2. Oh, that's right. I did see that. I've never seen that movie, but... Oh, it's so good. I remember when they were releasing the soundtrack, because Weezer did a song as well. Into the Unknown. He sings Into the Unknown, so he's, uh, yeah, let's just say that Brendan Urie's a Disney beefcake and leave it at that. There is a music video for this song, too, which I don't remember 
really seeing at the time. I went back and rewatched it, and I guess I had seen it before because it it did spark some memory in my in my brain. Yeah, it's the fishbowl people, right? Yeah, it's these people have fish tanks on their head, like their face is submerged in the fish tank. It's not like they're bouncing fish tanks on their head, <laughs> right? Yeah. And like they're breathing through the water, like right, they have gills, right. essentially. Right, like think of like astronauts, but fish tanks. They're fish people is what they are. They're walking fish people. And I guess the premise is when your fish tank cracks or you lose the water, you die or you become incapacitated. Yeah, classic fish people. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the video is these two, this guy is shot and his fish tank breaks and he's dead and then his lover breaks her own fish tank and then dies as well. And they're then taken to the ocean, dumped. Mm -hmm. And then they come back to life and start making out underneath the ocean. Little underwater makeout sesh, yeah. Mike, that's just classic 21st century love, you know? Yeah. I wish I didn't go back and watch this music video because it was so stupid. (laughs) No, it was very heartwarming, Mike. I think they try on a lot of these and some of it hits and others miss and i think this one missed i thought it was poignant the music video not the song itself yeah track number eight here we are mike our intermission take a little breather stretch out get a little popcorn let's all go to the lobby let's all go to the lobby So I think this intermission actually acts as a perfect transition because it changes halfway through, doesn't it? The beginning of it sounds almost like video game music. And then it changes and becomes a piano song. It almost sounds like an old silent film soundtrack to me. It was kind of eerie. It was like a silent film era Dracula motion picture or something like that. It's funny you bring that up, Keenan, because you're pretty much spot on. I always found this fascinating and I always thought that this was pulled from somewhere, but I never confirmed my suspicion until this past week. Oh, this is actually from something? They didn't just make this up? The words that are spoken in this song are, ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue our broadcast of dance music. We shall continue now with our piano interlude, which, like you said, connects the first half of the album of upbeat dance, almost electronic music to what we're going to delve into shortly. But that is a sample more or less from the 1938 radio broadcast of the War of the Worlds. Oh, I didn't even know that. Wow. It was sampled from H.G. Wells' radio broadcasts, War of the Worlds in 1938. It was an episode of the American radio drama anthology series, The Mercury Theater, on the air. And it aired on CBS back in 1938. So it was Orson Welles who had adapted the H.G. Wells novel, and it was performed and broadcast as a Halloween episode on October 30th, 1938. I listened to this back in high school because I thought it was a pretty fascinating event. They introduced it as a work of fiction, but then went into the story of the War of the Worlds and played it as though it was happening in real time. So 
And people freaked out, right? Wasn't there a big panic? Right. So it started with just music, and then it was interrupted saying, we can no longer broadcast our music tonight due to an interruption beyond our control. And then it continued with this classical music, and every once in a while it was interrupted by people updating what was going on, like these ships had landed and these creatures were emerging. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New York. There were rumors over the years that people committed suicide because they were so panicked by these alien life forms attacking Earth that they were, you know, driven to do that. Because once they introduced the program at the beginning of the episode, they didn't really break character or break from the production until well into it, past the point where people turned it on, heard what they believed to be real and what was actually happening, and then panicked and didn't sit down for the remainder of the hour and listen to the rest of the story that was being told. So a pretty interesting thing, especially in 1938. Yeah. I'm surprised I got past the censors and whatnot, but. That's crazy. I always knew about that story. I just had no idea that that's what they took this from. Pretty cool. Track number nine. But it's better if you do. I believe the third single from the album. The title actually comes from a Natalie Portman quote in the 2004 film, Closer. It's a continuation of the previous song, right? Lying is the most fun a girl can have without taking her clothes off, but it's better if you do. That's right, yeah. It's a continuation of the quote from that previous song. The song itself is about a guy who's in a strip club, but he doesn't enjoy being in a strip club. How can you not enjoy being in a strip club, Keenan? That's the best <laughs> you love strip clubs you're known for that everybody knows that mike moynihan is the strip club guy yeah thank god people can go out again you know this quarantine's getting a little more lenient i'm really missed the strip clubs during this whole <laughs> the concept of the strip club is just so strange to me i mean whatever you're into i guess but are you trying not to offend our uh, strip club loving audience <laughs> yeah. i would say that strip clubs are also one of the things that guys are very split on it's either like you hate strip clubs or you love strip clubs. I haven't met too many guys that are like, oh yeah, I could go to the strip club. Casually go to the strip club on a Friday night, sure. I don't 
think I've ever met anybody that's gone to a strip club sober either. I think it's that's a fair point. Usually yeah. like a drunk idea. Like, you know what would be funny? You know, it would be like yeah. a thing to do. That's not sitting here watching TV. Yeah. It's also obviously a big bachelor party thing, but even those I feel like are just part of the event. Like you don't really want to go, but it's just something that you feel obligated to do. Not only does this guy seemingly not like the strip club, it seems like this is his first time in one because the first line is, now I'm of consenting age to be forgetting you in a cabaret. So I remember not necessarily going to a strip club, but there are certain experiences where you hear it talked about through other channels like movies or pop culture. One that I think of is like the first time I did a shot of like, liquor or whatever like oh yeah everybody does shots and i was like oh my gosh like why do people do this (laughs) so it's kind of like this realization that it's like this isn't the cool scenario i thought it was going to be obviously you know you get used to doing shots over time right i find it funny that you mentioned alcohol because the one line that stood out to me on this song was the strip joint veteran sits two away smirking between dignified sips of his dignified peach and lime daiquiri (laughs) because <laughs> when I think strip club veteran, I think of a guy who's sipping on a peach and lime daiquiri. Yeah. Although that might have been a joke. It might have been. Because they said dignified like three times before that. So yeah, It could have been like a, <laughs> like poking fun at everything about him, I guess. My only experience with a, a daiquiri, as I call them, was in New Orleans, like a frozen daiquiri. Wait, as you call them? What? How else would you? Like in this song, he says daiquiri. That's me. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'd only ever heard of daiquiris in their frozen form from when I was in New Orleans. Oh, yeah, yeah. Big yeah. New Orleans episode for me. Yeah, huge New Orleans episode. <laughs> but I looked it up, and it's they were actually a classic like gentleman's drink from the early 20th century, which kind of plays into this narrative. Oh, okay. So why didn't you say that before? That makes more sense now. Because I still think he's poking fun at the guy. I don't know. Oh, okay. Because in my mind, when I think of a guy sitting at the corner of the strip club bar who's been in there all weekend, it's like some scumbag dude sipping on like a Bud Heavy, not yeah. like a like a classy gentleman's drink. Like a tall boy can with like seven in front of him. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Or like a PBR. Something. Right. A tall boy PBR. That's a good one. I can't really speak to the strip club experience, Keenan, but there are places where you just see these sad, lonely dudes, and you almost wish they had just stayed home. We went out to eat to the Hooters in King of Prussia a couple years ago, and... Which is not a strip club. Go on. My point is that the clientele there, it was very depressing. Oh, boy. Like, you had guys dining alone, and you're at Hooters. You're probably only there for a couple reasons by yourself. And I guess they were regulars, because the waitresses would go over and, like, talk to them they would sit on their laps and stuff oh it was God. just very very weird that like obviously i guess these guys had money to spend and gave them nice tips for talking to them but i just remember thinking like i never want to end up here like i'd rather just drink by myself and order wings in and just <laughs> <laughs> watch tv or something i don't know what's hooters is that that local owl sanctuary yeah, that's right. The Al Reserve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize there were so many guys hanging out there. 
Well, that's the thing. There was like three or four guys in the place and us. It was around Christmas time. Well, why were you guys there? Just for the wings? Oh, for the wings. That's <laughs> yeah. what they all say. So it was after Christmas. <laughs> it was early February, I guess, because Sean had won his fantasy football league. We went out to dinner to celebrate as like a joke. That's where the guys go for fantasy football. Got it. Yeah. And the food sucked. So I really don't know why people go there. Well, I do, I guess. That leads me back to my point where it's like, it's a sad setting in my opinion. Agreed. Track number 10, the mega hit from the album, I Write Sins Not Tragedies. It was actually the second single, but as we know, commercially the most successful from the album. Up until recently, I would have said this was their biggest song, but they've had a couple of pretty big hits in the not-so-distant past. That song, High Hopes, that was everywhere for a couple months. Yeah, it was a big one. But from this album, I don't think that many people outside of Panic! at the Disco fans or pop-punk fans would remember songs other than this one. It is pretty funny that it was so successful because looking back on it, it was kind of a weird song. Like it didn't follow any sort of pattern that other pop punk massive hits followed. Right. It was such a different sounding song. And it was also about some really weird, depressing wedding scene. Like when you really think about the lyrics, it's not like a normal situation. It's not a normal theme that we've discussed before. Yeah, I don't know what made it such a big hit. Yeah, I mean, the chorus is catchy. You can't fault it for that. The verses are very weird, though. Yeah, it's pretty much just somebody eavesdropping at a wedding and hearing that the bride's cheating on the groom, right? Exactly. That's exactly what it and is. And then Brandon Yuri scolds them for not learning how to close a door. <laughs> a door. The edits for this song were so odd, too. The radio edits were so good. That's what made it so entertaining. Because they blurred out Goddamn. And they blurred out whore. And I think both of them were just replaced with him going, shh. Well, whore, definitely, yeah. Yeah, goddamn might have just been, you know, nothing. That's what I loved. I love that on the radio. We would always talk about that. We'd always make fun of that, really. Because it was kind of jokey in a way. And he did that in, in the music video as well. They did, right. If I can jump back into the narrative, Mike, for a second. So the guy hits rock bottom. He finds love in the wrong places. He falls for the wrong girl. Then she cheats on him. Then he decides to go to a strip club to see if he can rebound, see if he can get his mind off this girl who cheated on him. And then... Now we're back with this girl, and now he's marrying her. So he does fall through the shotgun wedding. They rekindle this relationship. And, of course, people at the wedding are talking about how she's a whore. She cheated on him earlier in the album. So it all is kind of connected. 
And now here's this wedding, this ill-advised wedding. How's this going to pan out, Mike? Probably for the best, right? Some old advice, Keenan. If on your wedding day you're thinking whether or not you should be going through with it, odds are you probably shouldn't be. <laughs> That's true. Do you know that from a personal experience or what? Yeah, that's some advice I wish I had taken. <laughs> no, I'm perfectly happy, but it's only been two and a half years, so who knows? <laughs> True. What I think is most interesting about the song is I think the groom overhears people talking smack about his wife and saying that she's a whore and that she's cheating on him. And he's delusional. He wants to hide from the truth. And so he says oh, can you guys just close the door so I can't hear that? And he continues with the marriage anyway. And if you read the lines, well, I'll look at it this way. I mean, technically our marriage is saved. Well, this calls for a toast, so pour the champagne. He's just turning a blind eye to the fact that she's cheating on him and she's unfaithful and everybody's talking about them behind their backs. Yeah, I think you're probably right in that. The line, imagine as I'm pacing the pews in a church corridor, that makes me think of, your wedding day, you're nervous, you're waiting for everybody to arrive and for the bride to walk down the aisle and you're kind of just pacing back and forth trying to get your nerves out. So this could be this guy that's just walking around the church prior to the wedding getting underway and he hears this exchange. The music video alludes to that thought as well because Brandon Yori plays this almost ringleader, like dressed in circus garb, and he's kind of conducting this wedding. And then at the end, we find out that he is the groom. Like, he is the alter ego. They're one and the same person. That's right. I think the narrator and the groom are the same person. So you're right. Sorry, can you say that one more time, Mike? I couldn't hear you. Right. Okay. Uh, thanks. I think the music video is the perfect adaptation of the song. And I also thought that the music video is like the epitome of Panic at the Disco sound, vibe, feeling. It's just all these carnival people, all these mimes. They're all dressed in these extravagant outfits. They're all dancing around. It's this very dramatic, overproduced scene. It reminds me of Helena from MCR. Same. Like the depiction of the people in the audience. Like one side of the wedding congregation is like they have their eyes closed and their eyes are painted on. Yeah, they're like a very bizarre-looking mime family. Kind of disturbing, honestly. Yeah. Like, I realize now I've seen this music video so many times that it doesn't really faze me anymore, but the first time I saw it, I remember thinking, why do they look like that? <laughs> yeah, very creepy. The other side of the family is filled with carnies, as we mentioned. Is that an offensive term? Can I say carnies? I think it's probably an offensive term to carnies. Uh, and that is, I would say, the vast majority of our listener base currently. So I don't think culturally it holds any negative connotations. Okay. Carnival folk. How about that? Yeah, this was an anomaly, Keenan. It was a different song with a different video that just managed to find the perfect formula to be this mega hit. This very weird mega hit. Track number 11. I constantly thank God for Esteban. Who is Esteban? Your guess is as good as mine. Witness the gentleman if you're gonna preach for God sex preach with conviction. Strike up the band. Whoa, the conductor is back at me. Come, congregation, let's sing it like you mean it. No, don't you get it, don't you get it now, don't you move? Strike up the band. 
So in this song, they're still in a church. I assume it's probably the same wedding from I Write Sins. It's a good continuation from that song. And I thought the song was all about him realizing that his personal life is now on display in front of all these people and they're all enjoying his misery. It's almost like rubberneckers passing a car accident. And now he's like, oh, these people are supposed to be my friends and family. Oh, I'm going to put on a show for them. He's starting to have this really negative image of the people around him. I saw this one a little bit differently. I thought it was like commentary on the church and religious folks. I think that's part of it, too. I think that's all baked into it. And how they don't practice what they preach, but rather like there's the line preach with conviction. So if you want people to believe what you're saying and what you're preaching, you have to actually demonstrate that you mean it. And I think it was going back to the first couple of songs on this album. It might have been self-reflection on the band as well. Like totally. If we want people to believe these songs and believe that we're legitimate artists and we need to put some conviction behind them and write songs that are worth listening to. Yeah, I think the connection between what you heard, Mike, and what I heard is he is saying that all these church-going people who are supposed to be his friends and family and supposed to be taking part in this big day that's supposed to be the happiest day of his life, his wedding, are spreading rumors about him behind his back, talking smack about his quote-unquote whore bride. And so I think you're right. I think he's saying that all these Christian faithful people are actually terrible people. So I think it's all kind of interconnected. I also thought of that scene from the movie Gladiator. You know the scene in Gladiator when he's like, are you not entertained? Right, yeah, of course. I always think of Brendan Urie saying that. Like he's standing up in front of all these people like, (laughs) are you not entertained by all the terrible (laughs) things in my life? It would seem as though they are, right? I think they are. And then Esteban, man, this Esteban guy, this guy's out of hand. Can you believe that? What Esteban does in the song, Mike? Tell us all about it. Go ahead. What role does he play, Mike? Please tell us. Go ahead. I couldn't find any connection to Esteban whatsoever. <laughs> I couldn't either. <laughs> Is there an actual like name translation, Esteban, to something in English? I think Esteban's like a producer. Is it Steven? Yep, you're right. Sorry, say that again, Mike? What'd you say? No, that one doesn't deserve a second repeating. <laughs> Um, okay, that's fair. <laughs> He's just thanking God for Stephen. I do love Stephen. I thank God for my Stephen. Shoutouts to all the Stevens out there, especially Stephen Montgomery. Stephen Stevens and all the Stephen Stevens, even Stevens, even Stevens, even Stevens. Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf. Track number twelve. There's a good reason these tables are numbered, honey. You just haven't thought of it yet. Why are these tables numbered, Mike? So people know where to sit. Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah. You gotta find your name. Please leave all overcoats, canes, and top hats With the doorman from that moment You'll be out of place and under duress I'm wrecking this evening already And loving every minute of it Ruining this banquet for the mildly inspiring end When you're in black slacks with accentuating off-white pinstripes Whoa, everything goes according to plan To me, this sounded like a song that you might hear in 
a 1920s or 1930s period piece musical. If there was any song in the album that could have been pulled straight out of a musical, it was this one. A lot of action going on. I agree. This is my favorite song on the album. This is your favorite song? Wow, that's pretty wild because this is, I would say, probably the most unconventional song on the album. I think that's why I like it, which is kind of funny because I said I didn't like your favorite song for the exact same reason. The piano in the beginning is so cool. Like, it makes you want to snap your fingers. And for an album that's full of songs that have stories, I think this one has the most interesting story and the most fleshed out story. From what I can tell, there's this big extravagant ball or party. You have two people there, a guy and a girl. And she's there. She feels underdressed. She feels like these people are looking at her and talking about her, saying she looks like, shh. It's another shush moment on this record. Yeah, a big shush moment. And this guy is just basking in her humiliation. He's saying, I'm the new cancer, never looked better, you can't stand it. Which, actually, that's my favorite line on the album, too. It's my uh, tattoo line. Wait, that's your favorite line on the album? I'm the new cancer, never looked better. I just thought, always thought that was cool. So something that you would get inked on your body forever, huh? In the context of this conversation, yes. There's not too <laughs> many lines that in my opinion, go well without the context they are pulled from. Yeah, because it's a very narrative type of album. It's a lot of story involved. You can't just take one out and be like, okay, this will survive outside of this song. Yeah, I always just thought that was an amusing line. Like, I'm the new cancer, never looked better. Oh, so you would get cancer tattooed on your body? Yeah, just... Mm, Probably ill-advised. Maybe. Do I just say where I would get it? I'm not so sure. I might have to veto that one. I'm hoping if I ever came to you in real life and said any of these that you would veto them. No. Most I'm okay with. (laughs) He does other things, too, like lace her cigarettes with nitroglycerin and spike the punch. So he's trying to drug this girl to embarrass her, make her get everybody's eyes on her. Like, look at this girl that can't handle her booze or is, you know, making a fool out of herself. Can I tell you how that fits into the overall narrative, at least in my mind? Nah, this time I'm going to have to pass. <laughs> Are you going to veto that now? <laughs> he obviously is still brokenhearted about her cheating on him. He just went through this fiasco of a wedding where everybody was talking behind their back. He had this big blow-up moment in front of all his friends and family, and now he's resenting her. And so, you're right, he is trying to embarrass her at this party where she's already feeling uncomfortable And I thought that it was actually him trying to kill her. I thought he was poisoning her to actually result in death. Wow. I didn't read that seriously into it. You think that might be a little too dramatic? Could be. Although it is panic, exclamation point, at the disco, Mike. I thought it was more like a revenge type thing, but... Definitely a revenge song. Not wanting to kill them. But I could be wrong, because there are other songs on this album that talk about shootings and bleeding and whatnot, so... And that line that you're talking about, that line about cancer, haven't you heard that I'm the new cancer? He's going to kill her via cigarettes like cancer would. I thought that was the connection there. Have you ever been to, I'm, sh- I'm sure you have, you ever been to a party where you feel like the odd man out, like nobody really wants you there? Everybody's talking about you? Um, honestly, not really, but that just might, I might just be delusional. <laughs> I honestly haven't. The only one that comes to mind is like frat parties early in college when you're trying to go out and... Oh, yeah. 
Well, I, I didn't feel like I was literally like the unwanted person there, but I've definitely felt like, oh, this is weird. Out of place. Kind of like how... Yeah, like out of place. I felt out of place at parties, sure. How Brendan Yuri felt the first time at the strip club a couple songs ago. That's true, yeah. It's like, this is a place I should probably leave as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was just you like every weekend at Penn State at frat parties. You're like, oh, I forgot that I hate this place. <laughs> <laughs> I think I only went to two or three. Oh, really? I mean, if I'm being honest, yeah. Nerd. The ones we went to were not cool. Like, it was cooler not to go to them than to go to them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. Because the ones that were having fun parties had a lot of people that wanted to go. Yeah, (laughs) true. These were ones where you just said, oh, I'm, I'm rushing. And they're like, come on in. Like, they were desperate for companionship. These frats were like the old guys at Hooters alone on a thursday night (laughs) and i was a buxom waitress with a hot plate of wings (laughs) (laughs) exactly what they're looking for track number 13 build god then we'll talk The fifth single, Mike. These guys were really trying to get another hit out there, Keenan. They were. They were trying to squeeze them out. This is another sort of weird, uncomfortable scene, isn't it? It's another kind of seedy mm-hmm. location. It's a crappy hotel. Isn't that what it is? At the corner of 4th and Fremont Street. Which, by the way, is a real intersection in Las Vegas, which is where they're from. So I just assume that there's some sleazy hotel there. Oh, yeah. It's probably a 50-50 ratio for CD versus unseedy location in Las Vegas. Yeah, that's probably true. I feel like stuff just goes down everywhere. Substandard motels. That's a nice way to describe it. Great way to a describe it. A substandard motel is like not a Holiday Inn, but maybe an Econo Lodge. This is way less than substandard. Yeah. <laughs> Anything where the doors are on the outside. For the most part, that's a safe bet. The acts that are taking place at these shady motels, Keenan, are more acts of infidelity. You have a woman who claims to be a virgin sleeping with a lawyer trying to get herself a job at his firm. So using her sex appeal for gaining status in the workforce. Very noble of her, you know? Use them if you got them. Sure. And the rooms have a hint of asbestos and maybe just a dash of formaldehyde. Those are two things that high school Ryan Ross and Brandon Yuri definitely thought sounded really cool, which I don't disagree with. Like, let's put this in. Yep. The girl goes from sleeping with a lawyer to sleeping with a constable. So she's going from guy to guy, just, you know, doing her thing. I know you have a tie-in to the previous story you discussed, so I am excited for that. Yeah, so I think they do use this song as a conclusion for this overarching narrative that they have through the album. To me, he 
has now been through this relationship. He's ended it either by killing her or humiliating her. That was sort of their breakup scene or the end of them. And all these scenes that we're seeing at this city hotel is him viewing them happen. He now has gone to this hotel looking for love once again in all the wrong places. And so I think this cycle for him is just going to continue on. It's kind of a sad way to end it, but I think that's just sort of the tragic hero that this guy is. Emphasis on the tragic. Emphasis on a hero. (laughs) This guy rocks. Not the hero we need, but the hero that we deserve. Is that the line? Yeah. I don't know. Nobody deserves (laughs) this guy. One final thing, Keenan, and this is... I was saving this. I was waiting to see where you went on this album. Is this the first one where you don't have your doppelganger sounds like song? Unfortunately, I think it is. Are you about to save the day? This might save the day. It's not as... It's a little bit more intentional, I would say, than songs in the past. But we mentioned earlier, Robert Weiss passed away the same month this album was released. And he was the producer-director of Sound of Music. The bridge of the song is, There are no raindrops on roses and girls in white dresses. It's sleeping with roaches and taking best guesses. At the shade of the sheets and before all the stains. And a few more of your least favorite things. It pulls some lyrics and the melody of that song from The Sound of Music. So, intentional doppelganger, but one nonetheless. Yeah, that's true. Ah, thanks for saving me, Mike. No problem. Now we can pop that in. Whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. I would say that this was probably one of the more unconventional albums that was popular within the pop punk and emo scene when we were growing up. It does have a lot of experimentation in instrumentation. Obviously, these themes are somewhat left field at times. Mm -hmm. It was cool that there was a narrative that I never really knew back then, but getting back into it, it's cool to follow that storyline from start to finish. A lot of this album didn't even seem to be pop punk to me. I am still astounded to this day that it became so popular within that community. I remember when I first listened to it, part of the reason why I enjoyed it so much was that it was a little bit of a change of pace from most of the bands I listened to. I think the people that disliked it probably just disliked it because it was a little bit unconventional. And let's be honest, Panic at the Disco is a band that, you know, the name's kind of corny. There's a lot of corny things about them that it's easy to poke fun at them. I remember in high school, I was just talking to somebody and I said, oh, Panic at the Disco is so cool. Like, they sound almost like a jazz band or something like that. And I just got made fun of. And I'm like, yeah, obviously I don't think that they're like 
these great jazz musicians from Las Vegas, but their sound is different. Whether it's authentic or critically acclaimed, that's not for me to say. I just enjoy the album for what it is. And it's a good follow-up to last week's episode, My Chemical Romance, because they are also more theatrical in their appearance, in their music composition, in their writing, in their music videos. They do like to have these over-the-top productions associated with the music. But I think it does add an extra element to the songs and to them as a group. And I think we could still consider Panic! at the Disco pretty theatrical to this day. Also pretty popular to this day, even though they're so different. Definitely. Like we had mentioned, that song High Hopes was everywhere for a while. I remember that was like Pete Buttigieg's campaign song. They had like a whole dance to it. I remember it was very interesting. I can imagine that's totally not lame at all. (laughs) (laughs) It was very cool. So yeah, Brandon Urie is still theatrical. I wouldn't say the music is necessarily as up my alley as this album was they actually took a complete departure on their next album pretty odd which maybe we'll discuss at some point but and as the members dwindled and it became just brendan yuri's project i wonder if that had some play in the music they released to this day who knows because i know ryan ross wrote most of these songs with brendan yuri and who knows how much his influence drove the way that these songs sound as opposed to Panic at the Disco as we know them or him today. Episode 14, Done and Dusted. Thank you guys again for listening. We do have a little bit of good news to share, and we have some bad news to share. Uh, Which would you guys like to hear first? Okay, bad news it is. Mike, would you mind letting us all know what the bad news is? We are going to release our 15th episode next week, and after that, we're going to take a couple weeks off, recharge our batteries, try to update some stuff around the studio, And just come back bigger and better than ever with episode 16, whenever that might be. It won't be long. We hope some of you miss us, but if you don't, we understand. But now for some good news. On our season finale, episode 15 next week, we will have a very special guest on the podcast. I don't want to reveal too much. For us, it's a pretty big deal. We're still pretty blown away that we're able to have this person on the show with us to talk some pop punk, but we're going to be dropping some hints along the way. And if you guys can guess it, there might be a special prize waiting for you. So please tune in for that one because it's going to be a really fun one. And on next week's episode, the season finale, we're going to be discussing Blink-182's untitled or self-titled album. It's the one with the big smiley face and I miss you on it. That's right. (laughs) That's how everybody knows it. Catch us if you can on the World Wide Web poppunkproj at gmail.com, poppunkproject on Twitter and Instagram, patreon.com slash poppunkproject. And we also have set up a tip jar 
through our podcast host, Pinecast, and that link should be in the description as well. You can tip us up to, I think, $100. So that's the preferred <laughs> donation amount. But, you know, anything you can spare is perfect because, like we said, we're trying to get some new mics and really just make this product as good as it could possibly be. Thanks for listening, guys. It means a lot. We don't just love you all. We're actually in love with you all. I'm not sure if I said that before. As always, we hope you have the time of your lives. Good riddance. What's that? By Menon. What? It's by Menon. By Menon? Yeah, it's like a jingle. Oh. If you know, you know, dude. All right. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>